Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Well, if you have your Bible open, do uh, keep it open at page 475. And if you haven't got it open, I think you'll find it useful to turn to page 475 as we continue to look through the book of Ezra. And as we do that, let me pray for us now. Heavenly Father, we have sung that your word is living light and we've prayed that you would prepare our hearts and open up our ears and lead us in your truth. So would you do that now as we turn to this book of Ezra written hundreds of years ago. Show us how it applies to us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, For many of us, Faced with a massive task, we often find it difficult to know where to start. And then when we do get started, the task can seem so big and the end of the project so far away that halfway through it, it's very hard to keep motivated to keep going. Let me think of exam revision, Uh, particularly GCSE exam revision, perhaps. Way back in November or December, your teachers told you that you must get on and start revising. And with so many subjects to revise, it was difficult to know where to start. I don't know what you started with, writing out your flashcards or turning to one of the revision books. Eventually, you got started. And uh, then as the weeks went chugging on, you got to February half term. And with the exams still a long way away, it was hard to keep going. Just to keep going with it, motivated. It seemed such a long time. It's difficult to get started, and then it's difficult in the middle of a big task to keep going. Some years ago, we embarked upon a building project, moving the bathroom, adding in an ensuite to a bedroom. It involved knocking down a wall, moving doors, not to mention all the plumbing and rewiring. That was all the sort of work that I couldn't possibly do, so we got builders in to do it, and they did a terrific job. And as I watched them, one of the things that impressed me most was how they knew where to start. And what to do next. And then halfway through the project, when everything looked a complete mess and I thought they'll never be finished, they had very clearly in mind the, the end point. They knew what, where they were going. Knowing where to start and being motivated to keep going. Well, here as we come to the book of Ezra, we're seeing the people of God rebuilding the temple, except they haven't started yet. Uh, you might ask, where are they going to start? Well, in verse 1, the people of Judah have arrived and settled in Jerusalem after their epic migration from Babylon. And now they they needed to start the work of rebuilding the temple. That, after all, was why they'd moved to Jerusalem. But where would they start? And what would keep them going? Because, as we're going to see, it's a very long task to rebuild the temple. Now, that's what Ezra chapter 3 is about. And before we answer those those two questions of of where do we start and how do we keep going, uh, look at the end of verse 1. I love this. The people assembled as one man in Jerusalem. And if you're taking notes, here's your first point. Unity comes through God's building project. Uh, You can imagine it's the first day of the building project and you can imagine them getting up early, having a hearty breakfast, turning up at the building site, all keen and enthusiastic for the task ahead, all wearing brand new overalls. And I love that at the end of verse 1. The people assembled as one man. They were united in the task of rebuilding the temple. 
As we've seen over these last weeks, for us, that translates into building the church, not a physical building, not a building project of of bricks and mortar, but, but building God's people. It's the task of evangelism and discipleship. It's the work of reforming the church to be all that we should be. It's, a, it's an ongoing task. Now let me tell you, there is nothing like being about that work, which is the work of God above all other. There's nothing like it for bringing God's people together in unity. When the church focuses on working towards reforming the church, it puts everything else in perspective it keeps secondary things secondary. That's what, be, that's what was beginning here in verse one. All focused on the one task, completely united as one man. Unity comes through building God's project, through, through God's building project. Secondly, where to start in God's building project? Look at verse two. Joshua, son of Jozadak, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and his associates, began to build the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it. Remember, they were there to rebuild the whole temple. Where do you start? What a task. Just picture the scene. They'd arrived in Jerusalem. The temple is in tatters. The city looks as if bombs hit it. What's the priority? What do you do first? Well, verse 2, they started by building the altar. That was the first thing they set to. The altar was at the very heart of the temple. The altar, and this is the important thing, the altar was the place for sacrifice for sin. It was the means by which God had given through which people could meet God. The temple and the altar was the one place that God had given where men and women could be put right with him through sacrifice. Do you remember that's the phrase that we've been using each week? The temple is the place where God can be met and put right through sacrifice. Meet with God through sacrifice. And that is why they started rebuilding the altar first because that is the biggest need we have to be forgiven to have our sin atoned for, to be put right with our God. It was the biggest need back then and it is today. And so for us, in in our priority in rebuilding the church, in doing this work of evangelism and discipleship and, and reformation, for us the priority must be that we point people to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ because Jesus' cross is the altar Jesus and the cross is the place where we meet God through sacrifice. If we're to see the church in this land built and reformed to increasingly be what it should be, the sacrificial death of Jesus needs to be given central place. We need to keep the cross of Christ at the heart of everything we do. It's obvious when we think about it that the cross is the symbol of the Christian faith. Oh, there are other symbols. But the cross towers above them all. The cross of Jesus is the place where we begin the Christian life. Allow me to be autobiographical for a moment. I knew about the God of the Bible from a very early age. I learned at Sunday school that Jesus died on a cross. But it wasn't until I was 20 that I understood why Jesus had to die. And how I could be forgiven through his death. 
and that getting right with God wasn't about my moral effort and it certainly wasn't about me being religious. And when I understood that Jesus sacrificed himself for me on the cross, it changed everything. My life was completely transformed at that moment. The cross of Jesus is the place where we begin the Christian life. But the cross of Jesus is also the place where we are motivated to live the Christian life. I love the words of the um, Australian evangelist John Chapman who died a few years back. On a number of occasions I heard Chapo say, we come by the cross, we live by the cross and we die by the cross. And he went on to explain what he meant by that. He'd say most real Christians know that we come by the cross, that the Christian life begins at the cross of Jesus. And he says most real Christians know that we die by the cross, that when we die and find ourselves in the presence of God, it will be the cross of Jesus that makes all the difference, ensuring that we spend eternity with God. We come by the cross and we die by the cross. Most real Christians know that. But then strangely, Christians seem to live by works. Living as if we maintain, maintain our relationship with God by, by trying hard and, and rule keeping and by our performance. But no, said Chapo, we come by the cross and we die by the cross, but we live by the cross too. It is the grace of God shown to us in the cross of Christ that motivates us to live the Christian life. So you see, the priority in realising a reformation is to take us... To the, take people to the cross of the Lord Jesus. That is the place where we can meet God through sacrifice and where we can come to know our God. And it is the cross of Jesus that motivate us, motivates us to be the people we should be as Christians. And that is why hundreds of years before Christ, here in the book of Ezra, the people of Judah began to build the altar, the place of sacrifice. And at the end of verse 2, we know why they started building the altar. They began to build the altar to sacrifice burnt offerings on it. And you see the point end of verse 2, in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses. We see exactly the same phrase at the beginning of verse 4. Then, in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles. It was the scriptures, the word of God, the Bible that gave them their priorities. Look through history and you'll see it again and again. The history of revivals in God's church is a history of God's people rediscovering and then returning to the word of God. You might like to read Nehemiah chapter 8 when you get home and you'll see the impact of God's people when they rediscovered the book of the law of Moses. Happened around about this time, just a little bit after this time. I think of the Continental Reformation in the 16th century, how Martin Luther's understanding of the gospel in the book of Romans began an unstoppable movement in Europe. How John Calvin taught the Bible and many others like him. Think of the English Reformation. Despite what many are taught in school, it didn't begin with Henry VIII wanting a divorce. It began way back with the Bible translated into English and then the advent of the printing press making the Bible available to the masses. It was a return to the Bible that sparked the Protestant Reformation in this land and completely changed Britain. Here in Ezra chapter 2, it was knowing and following the word of God that gave the people of Judah their clear priority to start by building the altar the word of God taught 
people where to start in God's building project. And it taught them to have the sacrifice of God as their first priority. And that, verse 3, overcame their fear of those around them. In chapter 4 next week, we'll discover just how strong the opposition around them really was. But here, their desire to obey the Lord was at this point greater than their fear of man. Do you see that in verse 3? They built the altar because they feared the wrath of God more than anything any human could do to them. And God's wrath is dealt at the altar. They knew it was more important to be right with God through the sacrifice he gave them than to fear what people might do. So they built the altar, motivated by the word of God. And it was what was written in the word of God that motivated them to build the rest of the temple too. We see that in verses 4 and 5. Look at verse 4. Then in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day and after that presented the regular burnt offerings the new moon sacrifices the sacrifices for all the, the appointed sacred feasts of the Lord as well as those, and so on they obeyed God's word by keeping festivals and making sacrifices and as we look at the first festival they, they celebrated we see what would motivate them to keep going in God's building project So here's the third point. First point, unity comes through God's building project. Secondly, where to start in God's building project. Thirdly, motivation to keep going with God's building project. See verse four, they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles. That was the first feast they celebrated. You can read all about the Feast of Tabernacles in the book of Leviticus, if you're taking notes, chapter 23, chapters 42 and 43, uh, Numbers 29, You can read all about the Feast of Tabernacles earlier on in the Old Testament. But in short, during the annual Feast of Tabernacles, the people of God erected temporary structures by the side of their house and lived in them for a week. They kind of lived in tents for a week as a reminder that this is not our permanent home. They went camping for a week. I hate camping. The last time we went camping, it was freezing cold. The time before, it was stifling hot. Neither experience was very pleasant. The last time we went camping, the campsite was noisy and I ended up with a bad back because of the awful bed I had. So after a week of very little sleep, I returned home exhausted and in pain and that was supposed to be a relaxing holiday. I hate camping. I hate trudging across the campsite in the middle of the night to go to the loo. I hate chilly shower blocks and cooking on a little stove that takes forever to boil anything and not having any decent light to read by night. Do you get the point? I hate camping. (laughs) I reckon the only good thing about living under canvas for a week is it makes you long for your permanent home. It makes you look forward to your bed and all your home comfort. Camping makes you want to be somewhere solid and secure and comfortable. And that is the point of the Feast of Tabernacles. They were supposed to hate it as well. Going camping for a week was an annual reminder of the insecurity of life. A reminder that there is nothing permanent here in this life. A reminder that there is so much better to come. The Feast of Tabernacles was designed to leave you looking forward to your future inheritance. And that was the first festival the people of Judah celebrated after building the altar. 
Do you see how this works? Once we've come to God through the place of sacrifice, the cross of the Lord Jesus, we celebrate our eternal home because it's secure and certain. And here's the thing for them. Our eternal future motivates us to be about building the church now. You see, remember how we started? Sometimes you don't know where to start. And sometimes once you've started, the job seems so big, how do you keep going? This is the motivation. Building the church is hard work. Giving your all to the work of God means sacrifices. You've got to be sure there's something better to come. If you're going to really be about building God's church, you're going to have to sacrifice time. Having less time for yourself to do all the things you might like to do here and now. Giving your time rather to the building of God's church. And it means working hard. Hard work and effort. It's no walk in the park being involved in gospel ministry. And it involves sacrificing money. We saw at the end of chapter 2 how the people of God gave vast sums of money to rebuild the temple. Gospel ministry means living for something else that is greater than this life. One man in gospel ministry said this, I could have a much easier life. In gospel ministry, I work most evenings. I take one day off a week and I'd love to have two-day weekends. I give substantial amounts of money to fund gospel ministry and as a result, I go without luxuries I would really enjoy. I'm not complaining. I'm simply saying that you've got to be sure there's more to come in eternity if you're going to make sacrifices like that. If we don't have eternity firmly fixed in our minds, why would we make sacrifices now? Look, honestly, if there is nothing beyond this life, we really should just live life to the full now. Have a blast while it lasts. Get as much as you can now because you're going to be dead for a very long time. So enjoy it now. Don't make sacrifices for God's church. What is the point of that? It is only when we have an eternal perspective that we'll be motivated to give ourselves to the work of building God's church, even though it is hard work. Celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles gave the people of God that eternal perspective. And that was the motivation for them to work hard and to keep working hard, even when the task seemed so long and difficult ahead. And so having built the altar, they had the place where they could be made right with God. And being right with God, they knew they had an eternal future. And with their eyes fixed on the eternal future, they now set about rebuilding the temple. Verse 7. Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters and gave food and drink and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre so that they bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa as authorised by Cyrus, king of Persia. Now I presume they paid for this from the money that had been given them by their neighbours when they left Babylon. Do you remember that? Chapter 1, verse 6. And from their own free will offerings at the end of chapter 2. And so finally the work on the temple began. You see, all they've done now is built the altar so far. And I say finally it began because, verse 8, it was by now just over two years since they'd arrived back in Jerusalem. Two whole years had passed before they'd started to rebuild the temple. And then by the end of this chapter, all they've managed to do was construct the the foundations. Look at verse 10. 
When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments with their trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord. He's good. His love to Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. That was all. Just the foundation. Now look at verse 12. Many of the older priests and the Levites and family heads who'd seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid while many others shouted for joy. Here's the fourth point. First point, unity comes through God's building project. Second, where to start in God's building project. Third, motivation to keep going with God's building project. And fourth, in verses 10 to 12, two responses to God's building project. You see, the foundations have been laid and there were, there were two different reactions. The first response in verses 10 and 11 are people praising God. They are full of joy. They were nowhere near completing the temple, but they'd made a start and they'd seen some progress. The foundations are in place. I remember how thrilling it was when I first got involved in God's building's work. Seeing one person here and another one there becoming a Christian was brilliant. From the outside, it wasn't spectacular at all, but I can remember the joy and excitement of seeing God's church gradually being built very slowly. I still get excited today when I see it happening in individuals and in churches up here in Yorkshire. I think of our partner churches at St Andrew's Kendry and St Thomas Kilnhurst. Ten years ago, these two little churches were just so struggling. But now with the Bible faithfully taught and the cross of Christ front and centre, those churches are growing and vibrant. Go along on a Sunday. They won't look very spectacular to you. They're not finished yet. They're just the foundations being laid. But, but it's brilliant. The church is being built. I think of churches that we've planted in these last years. Churches that are now established and are continuing to grow. But again, you go along, it doesn't look that spectacular. But it all makes me want to praise God. That's what's happening in verses 10 and 11. But you see this second response, this other response in verse 12. There was a bunch of people who remember what it used to be like. They think back to the days before the exile when the temple stood resplendent in all its glory. Solomon's temple, it was magnificent. And now, more than two years after they returned from Babylon, all they'd achieved to build was some flipping foundations and an altar. That was it. And as they looked at it, they were distraught because it was nothing like it used to be. The building was a former shadow of itself. And so, verse 12, they wept aloud. Here's a thing for those who've been around a while and seen better days. It's very easy to look back to the halcyon days when churches were fuller. Some of you will remember that. When it seemed loads of people went to church. When people in this nation were more open to the gospel. When they were ready to engage with God. When they believed in God. Think back to the good old days and it can be very discouraging. That's the problem with nostalgia. It's not what it used to be. Yeah, well, keep up. Well, you see, nostalgia like this can kill a church. And blind you of the progress that is being made. Think back to days gone by 
when things seem stronger and it's so easy to be discouraged. And it is very easy to discourage others even when things are moving in the right direction. So as some praised God for the foundations being laid, others wept as they remembered better days. And verse 13, no one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. As we read that verse, as we read those verses, 11 to 13, we're not told which response was right. So I'm going to guess there was an element of truth in both. When we see people converted and churches planted and growing, it might well not be what it used to be, but don't despise the day of small beginnings, says Zechariah. Rejoice that God is at work. Thank him when things are going in the right direction and whenever his church is finally being built. But equally, it is probably right to see that it's far from done yet. When uh, history shows us how far we've fallen, it brings a tear to your eye. Turn your weeping into praying. Pray that God will work powerfully again and restore his name in this land so that the churches are full and lively. And then let's get on with the work. With the word of God in our hands directing us, let's put the cross of Christ central in all we do. For at the cross, at the place of sacrifice, we can come to know God. And when the task of rebuilding the church seems overwhelmingly hard work, remember this is not our home. That there's something much greater to come and that will motivate us to work hard and to make sacrifices now, knowing that there is much greater to come. And as we see God working, rejoice in the work God is doing while maintaining a godly dissatisfaction until the work is done. And meanwhile, let's keep building. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this uh, little book tucked away in the Old Testament, written hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And we thank you that as we read it, we learn wonderful things and hear you speaking to us. May we be a people here who keep the cross not just central, but a priority, a key thing that we keep bringing before others and keep bringing before our own eyes so that we know how to live. We pray that we would be as one man united in this building project. We pray that you'd help us to keep our eyes very firmly fixed on the future as the motivation to keep going in the present when it's hard. And we pray that that would help us to make sacrifices and help us to be like these people. That when we see building going on, foundations being laid, people being converted, churches growing, that we would rejoice. But that we'd never be happy until the job is done. And so we would ask you to help us to keep building uh, because we know that this building project 
The building of your people is the most important thing we can ever lay our hand to. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.